Good to see you. Yeah, awesome. Glad you're here. Um, excited, as always, today uh, to be up here. I know I say that almost every week, but I really am um, excited anytime we get to open God's Word. And so um, it's just always good. And, and so I look forward to this. Thank you, Chase. Um, every week, every week. And so uh, today we're going to continue looking at this series called Opportunity and Opposition. And so um, we're going to be in Acts. We're going through the book of Acts. Um, we, we've kind of hit a spot where we're taking our time to get through about after this week and, and kind of this week, we're going to start picking up the pace a little bit, moving through Acts and looking at some different things. But um, go to Acts chapter four. Um, going to pick up a little bit of where we left off last week and then continue moving forward. Um, last week, we talked about out of Acts 2, 42 through 47, Acts 4, 32 through 35, we talked about this um, Christian community and the power of Christian community and how this um, looks and what it looked like in the first church. And um, we talked about it being a common unity, a common unity built around love for God and love for each other. This common unity built around the gospel, the good news of Jesus, this common unity that's held together by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we look at this and we see it and we we, we began to talk about this common unity. Go back and listen to that. It's important for us to see that one because that's what the church is, a people who are bound together by Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit um, around things we have in common um, for a specific purpose of filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, one, for that reason. Two, it's one of the four cultures. Community is one of the four cultures that we've recognized in scripture that is crucial to um, the, church's, uh, the church becoming the church that God desires for it to be. Um, the four cultures that we see are community, generosity, serving, and evangelism. And those four cultures are really, really important. It's kind of like a four-cylinder car. I don't know much about cars, but I know like if you have a four-cylinder car and only three cylinders are working, it doesn't run very good. I could not fix it. I can't tell you why it doesn't run very good. I just know it doesn't. Um, and so when we think about this, all four of those cultures um, need to be hot. They need to be functioning. They need to be working in a church. If the church is going to function um, to the maximum efficiency and effectiveness that God desires for it to function at, this, this, these, these um cultures of community, generosity, serving, evangelism. When those are functioning, we see the church function in incredible ways. It, it really is then that church that Jesus spoke about, that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we look at these. But here's the thing, is we can't just know those cultures, those four cultures, and try to produce those in our life through just modifying behavior or trying to force myself into something. Those four cultures should be things that are coming from an overflow of our relationship with Christ. These are things that we know them and we know that they are um, part of, of who we should be as a church, but those things really um, become true and effective when they are a part of our DNA. They are a part of the overflow of our relationship with Jesus. And it's not just things that we're trying to make happen, but God has worked so, so in our hearts that these are things that we desire. These are things that we want to be a part of. And so those are the things we're talking about last week and this week, the next 
couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about those four cultures and how they are important in the church, but also how um, we need to really have a good understanding of what this means and, and even how they're carried out in the church. And so um, Acts 4, beginning in verse 32, we read this last week. We're going to keep reading on into chapter 5 today and read probably one of the most um, bizarre occurrences in the book of Acts. And so it says in Acts 4.32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. You see Luke really introducing Barnabas here for two reasons. One, Barnabas becomes a major player in the early church as the book of Acts goes forward. He's one of the most um, probably uh, under-mentioned, under-recognized people in scripture, in my opinion. Um, but it's also here mentioned because it's, it's a very stark contrast, a very clear contrast to the account we're about to read. Um, and so going into Acts 5 now, it says, now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Now, real quick, just something I wanna to mention to you because this is really important. As Christians, we have what is called the doctrine of the Trinity, where we look at the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the um, three persons, one God. And there was a lot that went on in the early church, not in, in the first century church as much as in the, the third, fourth century and on, where there was debate over is the Father, is the Son equal to the Father, is the Spirit equal to the Son and the Father? Well, this is one of the passages that shows us really clearly that the Holy Spirit is God, um, not some, you know, uh, a part of God or just this is showing us that he is God. And the reason I say that is that it tells us here um, where Peter tells him, you've not lied, you know, to man, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Why is this filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, he's lying to a person. But then if you go on down at the very end of chapter four, he says, you've not lied just to human beings, but to God. Well, in one verse, he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Then he says, you've lied to God. And so this is one of those places where we see very clearly that the Holy Spirit is equated to God. And so that's just a little side note, right? Um, but something that is important for us to understand. So verse five, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Is that kind of weird to anybody? Like... You got paid this week and, and you, you like didn't 
put all of the money in and like you just drop dead, right? I mean, it kind of seems on the surface like what's going on and so it's kind of odd. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? And, and you're reading this and you're like, say no, right? <laughs> say no, say no. And she's like, yes. And you're like, oh, she's going to die. She said, yes, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Before we pray and get into this again, another little sign of great fear seized the whole church. There was this recognition of God's holiness. There was this recognition of God's righteousness that, that, that fear all, this, rev, this reverential fear of God had seized them in this moment, um, the holiness of God is something I think we oftentimes miss. Let's pray. God, thank you for your presence, the holy presence of God. Lord, that we so oftentimes underestimate. We so oftentimes don't recognize. And yet we as flawed human beings in our state of sin, now have the ability to come to you, a perfect, holy, righteous Father, because of the work of Jesus, because he took our sin, your wrath, and even though he had no sin, Lord, he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, that we could have access into the throne room of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as your children. And we thank you for that this morning we just continue our hearts in an attitude of worship, Lord, before you, even as we open your word. I pray that part of us would tremble at the thought of the holiness that is you, Lord. We love you, God, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, um, how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand, but I should, probably shouldn't even ask this as a question, but we are in church and we did talk about transparency. So if you want to raise your hand, you can. How many of you have ever been caught in a lie? Anybody caught in a lie? You're willing to admit all of you have. You just won't raise your hand. You know, I'm hypocrites. And so um, I got caught in a lie one time when I was in the seventh grade. Um, I had one of my best friends in, in, as I was growing up. He was in my math class class. He was in my math class. Um, he was in my math class and I was at his house one day and we're doing our homework and, and I hated math, never was good at math, never enjoyed doing math. And so he was a little further ahead of me. So I'm like, Hey, can I hold that paper? So I just copied down his answers. Now you gotta understand this was not like, um, something where the coincidences of having a wrong answer that was the same was even a probability. We were doing like multiplication, like 245 times, you know, 262. And like, if you get the same answer in that, then something's up, right? If it's wrong. Right. And, and so, um, that happened. Um, and so me and my buddy had the same wrong answer. 
And it was like, you know, whatever it was, uh, last week I tried to give some people in here an opportunity to do math, but you know, the biochemist over there messed it up in his head. And so um, I'm not gonna ask, unless Bo, you've got your phone and you wanna do the calculator thing again. But anyway, it was like a big number. It was a, a big number, like, you know, way up there. And we had the same exact wrong answer. And so my teacher, who already didn't like me, and um, I will say this about me in school, and, and there are actually teachers in here who can attest to this, who taught me in school. You either loved me or hated me. There was very little in between. I would say the problem, like the needle probably leaned more towards hate, um, but she already didn't find me very appealing. And so she calls us outside and she calls me and my buddy outside and she looks dead at us. And kind of like this, where Peter like looks straight at Ananias and he says, uh, you know, did you, is this the full price of the money? Well, she looks dead at me and she is like, did you cheat on this homework? I didn't have to think about it. Nope. <laughs> I did not cheat. I did not cheat. So my buddy's standing there, right? We're tight, boy, we're tight. This is one of my best friends. My buddy's standing there and she turns, she looks straight at him. And she said, did you cheat on this homework? He didn't even hesitate. Yes, ma'am, I did. I'm like, what the crap? I'm like, what's up, Honest Abe? Like, why are you, why, leave me hanging. And so now I'm like, and so anyway, parents find out it's just not a good deal. And so got caught lying, got caught cheating, that kind of thing. And so when we look at this, all of us have been in this place. When we look at this, this story, it's kind of the same thing. Peter's like looking at him and he's looking at him and saying, did you give the full price? And, and when you still look at this, it's not just like, Ananias walks in and he had sold a piece of property and he gives the money. When you look at this and you begin to really study it, um, people will tell you this, that there was some type of contract, there was some type of promise, some type of oath that had been made where Ananias has, has basically promised that I'm going to give this, the amount for this field towards something, towards the church, whatever the needs may be. I'm gonna give this amount. And so he comes in and Peter asks him, is this the full amount? Well, then Peter, um, Ananias says, yes, Peter knows he, it's not true. Peter's kind of like, in this point, kind of like your iPhone, where, how many of you had this experience, where you're like talking about like boats or something? This happened to my son the other day. You're talking about boats, and then you go to an app that has ads on it, and boats start coming up on everything. Anybody had that happen? That is freaky. And I'm wondering, like, who's just sitting there listening, right? Like, all right, let's put, let's put boats on there. How does all that work? But Peter's like that right here. Peter is like looking at Ananias and it's like he knows like already what's happened and he calls him on it. And then Ananias dies Then his wife comes in, she lies too, and then she dies. And, and we're just like, okay, I don't even know if I want to give an offering anymore. And so when we look at this though, there's some truths that we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira. There's some truths that we can learn and some things we need to take away from this um, and as we look at this. And one of those is this, we're gonna talk about this, this culture of generosity today, which you hear in the church and when you find out like the, the messages about money, the typical thing in the church and everybody's like, Ooh. And like all the air goes out of the room. And, and part of the reason for that is because of how we've talked about money. 
Like we've kind of guilted and manipulated people many times into talking about or into how they give and what they give and how much they give. And so we've either guilted them in or we've overpromised what God's word says. And so we tell them, if you give a check for $1,000 this week, you'll get one for 10,000 next week. And then that doesn't happen. And then they're like, either God's a liar or the preacher's a liar. And so I'm just out completely. And so we end up getting into this place where it just doesn't work well um, because there's manipulation on one, one side or the other. And so what we need to do today is we just need to kind of hit that valve like on a tire where you just kind of push the valve stem and it goes, lets all the air out, right? So let's look at this with fresh eyes and let's just see because there's some truths we can learn here. Then we're going to jump to another place and look at some um, oppositions we face. But the biggest misconception I think we have in our minds from a lot of church experience or what we've observed out from the church from the outside looking in is that the biggest misconception is that it's about money, that it's about money, that generosity is about the money. And I would tell you this, that generosity has always been about our heart. Generosity has always been about our heart. God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our money, but God desires our heart. And, and generosity and how we live that out is honestly, it is a, 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 um, fruit of a relationship with Jesus. And so many people, when it comes to this thought of generosity, we have these incredible feelings of guilt and shame or, or even anger because of how it's been handled. And, and I'll tell you this right now, it's not about the money, it's about our heart. It's about our heart. Jesus even tells us where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so when we look at this, we need to realize that first and foremost, this is not about the money, it's about our heart. In fact, Peter even tells them, look, this money was yours. Before you sold the field, the field was yours. After you sold the field, the money was yours. He's like, why, why didn't you just keep, you didn't have to make a promise to give. You didn't have to give any of it. You could have kept it, it was yours. And so it really wasn't about the amount of money. It was about the heart. Another truth we see and we can learn from Ananias and Sapphira is that generosity isn't a way to pad our ego. You see this a lot of times too, don't you? Where people give big money, they give big money because, and they think they'll get things back. Um, and, and a lot of times that happens even in church. And see, money carries this, this um, inherent power in many ways. And, and where the church is faltered is we have to realize that we're called to be prophets. We're not called to give goods for money or to give services for money. There's another word. I know we have children in here, so I'm not gonna go there, but there's another word that we could use to describe someone who gives services for money. And we're not gonna be that, right? We're gonna be a prophet. We're gonna continue to preach the word. Generosity isn't a way to pat our ego. Matthew 6, one through four, Jesus even tells us that, right? Where he tells us, look, um, you know, when you give, don't give like the hypocrites. Don't give to, to make a show. He even says give so that your left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Give in secret. He said, because those who give to make a show, those who give to, to, to make people think there's something, He's saying, look, they've got their reward in full. They've got their reward in full. And so he wants us to see this. It's, it's not to 
make yourself look good. Honestly, this is what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. I told you that Barnabas was a stark contrast, a very clear contrast to Ananias and Sapphira. And here's the contrast. And here's what's happening. Ananias and Sapphira want the reputation and they want to be known as Barnabas without the sacrifice. They want to be seen like Barnabas, but they want to do it without having to become uncomfortable, without sacrifice. And so they're trying to basically bribe the church and bribe God. Another truth we see in this is that generosity comes from devotion and not a Christian duty. Barnabas did this not because he was forced to, not because there was a law that said he had to. He did this out of devotion to God and out of love for people. And so he saw needs and so he was willing to sell a field and he was willing to give the proceeds of that field. What he made off of that field, he was willing to give to the apostles so that they can meet the needs around them. This wasn't something that was done out of duty or because of a law or because they told him you need to give this percent or you need to do this or you you need to do that. It was done because the Holy Spirit had put such devotion and such love and such compassion in Barnabas's heart that when he saw need around him and he saw the kingdom advancing around him, he's like, how can I not do this? So it comes out of a place of devotion and not duty. Another thing we see in this, and this is very clear throughout scripture, is that God hates hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy. And I've told you this over and over and over again. I'll tell you one more time. Hypocrisy is not being imperfect. Hypocrisy is being imperfect, but claiming that you are perfect. And right here, you see this so clearly. God hates hypocrisy. You know, if God allows this to continue in this new church that right now it is still centered in Jerusalem and it was, it was given to the Jews, the good news of Jesus was given to the Jews, but it wasn't meant to stay with the Jews. And right now there is this infant church that God um, is looking at and it hasn't even started going out yet. And already Satan is working in the hearts of people inside to try to disrupt what's going on in their bodies so that it can accomplish its purpose. And it's as if God looked at this infant and he said, you know what? I can't allow this to happen. And if this hypocrisy is allowed to continue, then the saying that is is always said now about the modern church, that the church is full of hypocrites. It would have been true then of the early church and it would have hindered the ability for the gospel to begin to go forward. And so when we look at this, we see God dealing quickly and sharply with this hypocrisy that existed in their hearts. And so we need to realize this. We we can go back to all of Jesus's teaching. How many times did Jesus say, do not be like the hypocrites? Or you can go to Matthew 23 and you start reading where Jesus is like, you hypocrites, woe to you. Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, you hypocrites. The only people that Jesus ever really got sideways with, you know what I mean, sideways, like ready to throw down, were the hypocrites. God hates hypocrisy. It leads to disillusionment of his people. It leads people astray. Um, You go to Galatians chapter two where Peter has withdrawn from eating with Gentiles, those non-Jews. And this is Peter now, the, the apostle Peter has withdrawn and he's no longer eating with Gentiles. And it says that his hypocrisy was so strong that it even led Barnabas, the Barnabas we just read about, astray. 
Hypocrisy leads people astray. It directs them away from God. It gives them a disillusion about who God is and the church. It's not that we have to be perfect because if we think we're gonna be perfect, then we have to act perfect and that's the hypocrisy. We need to be transparent. This is what they weren't willing to do. Even as you look at it, Peter gave Sapphira an opportunity to repent. He asked her the same question. All she had to do was go, you know what, Peter, nah. But she continued the hypocrisy. So God calls us to the transparency. God hates hypocrisy. How about some oppositions to generosity? We're talking about in this series, opportunity and opposition. We see incredible opportunity throughout the book of Acts. And, and here's something that's really interesting. I would encourage you to, to recognize that every time the spirit moves in, in the book of Acts, when we see the spirit really beginning to move, we see an incredible act of uh, um, culture of generosity. You go to Acts 2, 42 through 47, Acts 4, 32 through 35. And, and, and Luke, in, within those two chapters, mentions it twice of how the people were sharing. Now we think about revival many times. We think about revival as when we come and, and we come to this place of uh, where, where, you know, uh, God's moving and there's healing and there's salvations and we got goosebumps and, and, and all of this stuff and we think about revival and all of that can be really part of revival. But here's the thing I would tell you, when true revival begins to happen, we become so selfless that we can honestly look around and go, you know what, there's no needy persons around us. That, that true revival is when we, we begin to really value others above ourselves and we begin to see um, needs and we begin to meet those needs and we begin to value God's kingdom and we begin to be generous towards the kingdom of God moving forward. And so as we look at some of these oppositions, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So go to the right and go through the end of Acts and Romans and come to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Go to chapter eight right there. Now in this, Paul, the apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. We're about to read where he's addressing them about an offering that he's taking up. Now this offering um, was not like uh, a regular offering that would be taken for the church itself where he was at or, or going to be going to in Corinth. It was taken for Jews in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going through a really, really tough time. They were going through a difficult season. And, and so um, he was taking up and spent probably about 10 years taking up an offering that was to be carried back to the Jews in Jerusalem. But from this account, from what he was doing, we can learn a ton about what the New Testament tells us about giving and about generosity. And so let's begin reading then in verse 16. He's about to talk about sending Titus, who was a disciple of Paul's, who he would, had really poured into, was raising up. Titus was one of his kind of right-hand men kind of things who did a lot of work alongside Paul and for the kingdom. And so this is where he's about to talk about the offering um, and sending it with Titus and sending Titus to collect it from them. It says, thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending him, sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer 
in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. Now think about this. He's telling them basically, look, I'm sending Titus to collect it. I'm sending this guy with you that all the other churches praise as a servant of God. I'm sending them with you. We're going to have people accompanying us with this offering. People are going with us to Jerusalem. But why would he do that? What's he concerned with? Transparency, integrity. And one of the oppositions to generosity in the church, to be quite honest, has been the church's integrity. Anybody ever seen any news about misappropriation of funds from a church? I mean, it's so bad, it even like infiltrates movies. Like um, in the movie Christmas Vacation, any fans? Any fans? It's like when when Eddie, and, and children are around, so I'll clean this up too, but Eddie is speaking to Clark and he says, if I just had back that money, I sent the TV evangelist who was messing around with the hockey player. Y'all remember that line? And isn't it bad though, listen, that movies in the world have picked up on this because it is so frequent and the integrity of the church has been so damaged by things like this that even worldly movies, like they pick it up and they're like, yeah, this is true. And we see this, we see places where, you know, the pastor's flying around in a jet Is that because it's cheaper than buying Delta tickets? No. And so we see this. There's like this lack of integrity in the church that exists so many times. In fact, here's the thing I would would ask you. If, If you come up to me and you say, like Tim, you come up to me and you say, hey, can I borrow $20? What's the first thing I'm going to ask you? Why do you need $20 for? Or what do you need $20? I'm, I'm not very good with grammar or math. And so, but I'm like, what do, you, what do you need $20 for? Now that can be a question of like, dude, are you okay? Or that can be a question of like, you, you, what you taking my money for? And this happened to me one time. Um, I, I had, a guy had come and he had, he had asked me for money. We were actually coming out of a restaurant from an ordination service. And so I was doing something godly. So I'm like, I need to give him some money, right? And so um, he comes up, he asks me for this money and he says, um, I, need a, I need the money to buy some diapers and a soda. All right, gave him $20. So I'll tell you what, we'll even drive you to the store. You, you wanna do that? He's like, yeah, yeah. So we drive him to the store. We, Drop him out, he runs in the store. He's in there for a little while. I'm like, eh, don't take that long to get a soda. He comes back out he, and I'm like, well, where's your drink? He goes, oh, they didn't have the one that I wanted. So I just played my numbers. I'm in the back seat with this guy. You, you know how when you get really angry, you get a twitch? So frustrating, right? But there's integrity. About this. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Another opposition to this is many times the way we've 
been taught about generosity has brought shame and, and even condemnation. It hasn't brought us to a place of freedom in giving and in trusting God. Here Paul's saying, look, set apart what the Lord puts in your heart. It's about the leading of the Holy Spirit. Third one here is verse 10. Now he who supplies seed for the sower or to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving. We, we need to understand this, that, that in opposition for us being generous people is the question of, will I have enough? And yet Paul's telling us, he's like, look, he'll supply the seed, not so that you can be rich and fly around in your own jet, but so you can continue to be generous. And out of that generosity, your righteousness is gonna grow. And so he's encouraging them with this. Jesus even told us about the flowers and the sparrows, right? He said, look, if, if God, the Father, if he loves the, the flowers so much that he clothes them in, in splendor that's greater than King Solomon's, and if he loves the sparrows so much that he feeds them, is he not going to take care of you? And yet here's the thing, guys, when it comes to this and living generously and answering that question of will I have enough, we can never see God be faithful in that way if we don't take a step of faith to trust him in that way. It'll always be a mystery. Will he really do it? Will he? What if? What if? Until we take a step of faith and trust him in that way, we'll never be able to see him be faithful in that way. Another reason is this, that we don't understand the why behind generosity. So I just drop some money in the boxes and I leave. I don't really know why I'm doing that. I guess it's to keep the lights on. Is that the end goal is to pay an electric bill? That's not very exciting. Like I don't, I don't want to spend my life just paying an electric bill. Do that already. And so we need to understand the why. And look at 2 Corinthians 9, 12 through 15. Paul says this, he says, this service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which you have proved yourselves. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. So we look at this, here's, here's number one for why, why? Why are we generous? I'm not talking about just giving money to, to the church here, the, 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 the people here, the, the organization here. I'm not talking about just being generous. Why, are we just, why do we just live as generous people? We live as generous people because we see needs. We live as generous people because we see people around us who are in need. And so we give to them, we are generous to them because they're in need. Another one, now let's flip over to the book of Philippians. Here's the second reason. Book of Philippians. Philippians chapter four. 
Philippians chapter four, beginning of verse 14, Paul again is writing this letter. He's writing it to the Philippians. He says this to them. He's thanking them for the gift that they sent him to support him. He says, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the earliest days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. So he's thanking them for sharing in their giving and in, in helping support the ministry that he was doing. He says, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than, than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. Here's the other why behind why we give is because of the vision of God. God's vision for the world that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. One time I was praying like, God, what do you want the vision of this church to be? What do you want the vision of this church to be? I'm walking down the hallway about to go into my office and the Lord just spoke to my heart and he said, why don't you let my vision be your vision? Like, okay, so what is that? And he began to just unroll this. Like, look, man, like, so that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So one of the reasons, one of the whys is so that as Paul was supported, so that the ministry goes forward. So that ministry, the kingdom goes forward. So we are generous um, to people outside, to people inside. And here's the thing I can tell you is I'm not gonna preach a message on generosity to try to get you to give here. I'm gonna preach a message on generosity because that's what the Bible teaches. This is what I am 100% convinced of after doing this for about 15, 16 years now, is that God will supply every need that we have. And I'm not gonna try to guilt you, manipulate you to drop a check in the box. What I want you to do is I want you to pray. And if you give here, I want it to be because you believe in what God is doing here and how he's working here, not because you feel this burden that some, oh gosh, if I don't give, I'm gonna be like Ananias and Sapphira and I'm gonna drop dead. So here's, here's some what ifs I'm gonna leave you with. What if, what if we lived with a mindset? What if we lived this way? What if we lived with a mindset that said, when I see a need, I'm gonna meet a need. If it is within my ability, when I see a need, I'm going to meet a need. What if, what if we lived Second, what if, what if we lived as though God's vision has great value? What if we lived as though God's vision has great value? That the kingdom going forward matters. That we place great value on God's vision. Third, what if, what if we saw our value through the sacrifice God gave for us? What if we saw our value through the sacrifice God gave for us? So listen, so that we don't have to try to keep up with the next door neighbor because that's not where my value lies. 
What if I didn't live in fear or the scarcity mindset that there's not going to be enough and I was able to do that because I recognized the value that God places on my life. And because of the value he places on my life, I know that when I step, when he leads me to step, he's gonna take care of me. Because this is something that I've seen in my own life. What if, the last what is, so three is this, what if we saw value through the sacrifice God gave for us? The fourth what if, if what if God's sacrifice for us compelled us to sacrifice for others and God's vision? What if our understanding of the gospel and what Jesus did and what God did, the sacrifice he made was what compelled us, not a feeling of guilt, not a feeling of condemnation, but our understanding, our revelation of the gospel. What if that was the sacrifice, that sacrifice compelled us to sacrifice for others so that when we saw a need, we were willing to sacrifice to meet a need and that we put such value on God's vision that we were willing to sacrifice. But it's motivated, it's driven by the vision of God, by the heart of God, by the sacrifice of God. It's not driven because some pastor stood up and said, if you don't, it's not driven out of guilt and manipulation. It's driven out of God's love for us, our love for God and our love for others and the value we place on God's mission that the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. I want to encourage you. We're going to sing one last song. I want to encourage you before you leave here today. I want to encourage you that we would spend a little bit of time thinking about the gospel, thinking about what Jesus did, not so you put something in the play, but so you leave here understanding the value that God's placed on your life. So I want to pray. We're going to sing, Lord, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for life for the gift of Jesus. And in light of that, God, we worship you. And we thank you, God. You're worthy of the sacrifice, Lord. So many in here today could have more things, but they sacrifice for you and your kingdom and for their love of others. God, I'm grateful for that. God, help us to have a greater revelation of the value of your kingdom and the same love you have for people. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.